Hi, and thanks for listening to A Little More Conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara-Byrne. Tonight, we hear from longtime conservative commentator Tasha Carradine about the inspiration and aims for her new book, The Right Path, Conservatives Can Unite, Inspire, and Take Canada Forward. We hear from an alcohol-free sommelier, yes, there is such a thing, about some tips on how to enjoy the patio this summer, or maybe the beach, while cutting down on the booze. Global's Carolyn Jarvis tells us about an investigative series she's just done along with APTN on big problems with some for-profit group homes in Ontario caring for youth in foster care. But first, we hear from a veteran emergency room doctor in eastern Ontario in the town of Perth, where they've had to close the ER altogether this week due to a lack of nursing staff. And now it's yet another example of a crisis in Canadian healthcare that needs to be dealt with immediately. And we'll begin there tonight. Let's give you a specific example of what this looks like on the ground. The Perth and Smith Falls District Hospital in eastern Ontario serves about 60,000 people in an area about 90 kilometres southwest of Ottawa. Well, over the weekend, the Perth Hospital's ER, there are two, Perth's Hospital was forced to close because of a shortage of nurses, sending people to the Smith's Falls Hospital, which is about 25 kilometres away. That is now the only one open to serve that entire area. Now, the Perth ER was meant to reopen this Thursday. That has now been delayed. That is how authorities, as I mentioned, across the country have cut the hours of hospital emergency emergency departments and urgent care clinics in recent weeks. And a move that in some cases may extend right through the summer. The shortage, these problems are not going away. It's really due to a surge in patients and staff shortages exacerbated by the high number of healthcare workers who are sick or just simply burned out. Well, with more on this now, joining me is Dr. Alan Drummond. He's co-chair of public affairs for the Canadian Association of Emergency Physicians. He also is a family and emergency physician at that very same Perth hospital I was just talking about. Thanks for your time tonight. Oh, my pleasure. So just uh, in a nutshell, what's going, what, what has been going on in, in, in Perth? Right. Uh, so I've been here since 1983. This is coming on my 40th year. Uh, and for the first time in that entire history, uh, we're faced, we had the occasion to close our emergency department because of staffing shortages. This is really a national problem. Uh, you know, there's been a number of reasons why nurses are leaving the profession. Unfortunately, most sometimes most, some of our most experienced nurses, uh, burnout and stress, uh, short staffing situations, crowding, increasing levels of violence and abuse in the emergency department. And, uh, you know, COVID is sort of the thing, the, probably the hair that broke the camel's back in some respects. It's been a long time coming. Our nurses uh, have been saying for years now, we need more help. Uh, you know, we're not, we're not comfortable with the safety of the care we're providing. Uh, you know, we need more resources. And, uh, you know, I think uh, our administration, like many other administration, has been saying, well, there is no more money in the pot. So do the best you can. Hang in there. You know, we're all in this together. And, uh what happened recently was we've gone in the last several months from a cadre of 15 emergency nurses down to about seven uh, a couple of weeks ago, a couple left for somewhat greener pastures in private industry. And uh, that left us down to five. And at that point, the hospital was talking about, you know, we're not sure we can provide a safe level of care. Therefore, we will uh, consider closing the emergency department down from 11 o'clock at night to seven in the morning. Uh, that was the plan. Uh, and then on Friday last uh Two of the remaining five nurses tested positive for COVID, bringing down our cadre to three and a completely uh, untenable and unacceptable situation. So here we are. 
We've got a closed emergency department uh, and are expected to close into sometime into next week. Uh, people that come to our doors are being redirected to our sister hospital in Smith Falls, which is about uh, 20, 25K away. Um, and, um, you know, I feel like we've kind of let the community down. I can imagine because for the, for the area of Perth, you're really the only, you're it. Right. So, you know, the town of Perth is uh, 6,000 people, but the broader catchment area is around 25,000. includes uh, people that come from an hour and an hour and a half away, Charlotte Lake, Donald's Corners, up around Calabogie, Westport. It's a big geographic area. We are the only hospital in that, in that catchment area. We are between Peterborough and us. There's nothing else. And we, we live, you know, we're, we're, we're situated right on a busy highway, on Highway 7, which is still a main artery uh, for the Ottawa Toronto traffic. Uh, we have, you know, heavy uh, agricultural industry here. We have uh, factories uh, and they rely on us to be available should there be an unexpected illness or injury. Uh, you know, a lot of people here are socially disadvantaged just to be straight. Uh, you know, they're, they're still driving around in 1985 uh, Ford pickup trucks, which are rusted out with a muffler dragon. And uh, they're going to show up in our doors in the back of these pickup trucks uh, on on very valuable gasoline fumes based on the price of gas and being told, guess what? You have another 25 K to drive before you can be assessed. And when you get to the Smith's fall site, you're going to be in a physical facility, which will be overwhelmed because of all the Perth residents that are going there. So yeah, it's a pretty uh, tough situation to be in, to be sure. It must for you just, it must be difficult. I have 40 years. You've been there. This is the first time this has happened. Uh, what are you telling people when they show up? Uh, well, uh, I think, you know, we're telling them we're sorry. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think the message has got to be that we can't ever let the situation ever happen again. Uh, you know, it's been framed as, you know, another uh, victim of COVID. That, that, that simply isn't true. Yes, technically speaking, uh, COVID caused us to go from five to three nurses in the closure of emergency department. But the true reality of this is that COVID did not cause us to go from 15 nurses to five. Uh, and so you know, we have to start addressing uh, and embracing the concept that emergency nurses really, for the social fabric of Canadian healthcare, a vitally important resource. And we have to listen to them when they are saying, you know, we're concerned about whether we're providing safe care. We need more resources to do the job properly. That's, that's the moral of this story. And clearly this is not happening simply in Perth. We're seeing reports of nurses leaving and of, of, of other emergency room staff leaving as well in, in hospitals right across the country, big and small. Yeah, well, you know, I, I am a co-chair of public affairs for the National Emergency Physicians Association. So I am fully aware uh, that this has been going on now for well over a year. Uh, you know, in Gatineau Hospital last year closed for a week. Uh, which is a suburb of Ottawa, closed for a week because of a shortage of nurses. My brother is an emergency physician at St. Mary's in Montreal, and I was talking to him, and he told me that their weekend cadre of, of nurses in their emergency department, which is a busy emergency department, has gone down from 15 to 5, and he worries about whether they can provide safe care. So this is a national problem, uh, and because of the balkanization of healthcare in Canada, it's been sort of downloaded to the provinces to sort out, and here in Ontario, uh, you know, it's a provincial uh, requirement to sort of make sure that we get the care we deserve. But here we are, uh, and it's been downloaded to the hospital to sort out a provincial problem, which is in fact a national problem. There is something terribly wrong with this picture. The impact on patients must, there must be a domino effect as well. If they're not getting that initial primary care or their initial emergency care, then it just cascades, does it not? Well, it would. And these rural emergency closures, I mean, 
ostensibly we're a system of care. And so one, when one goes down, uh, the dominoes start to fall. And I think that would probably be best reflected in the fact that, you know, our ambulances uh, will not be able to respond in a timely manner because they're probably going to be stuck outside one of our community hospitals, you know, 25, 30 kilometers away waiting to offload. Our emergency department in Smith will become, you know, threatened with being overwhelmed uh, depending on the acuity of patients presenting. And more importantly that, you know, Canadians, when they go to bed at night, they, they go to bed safe in the knowledge that there's an emergency department there to provide them timely access to quality care. And when things like this happen, it, it shakes the confidence of Canadians in the integrity of their healthcare system, and more importantly, their emergency healthcare system. And uh, you would think, uh, and I'm not, I don't want to beat up on Doug Ford. He gets enough of that you know, on his own. But, you know, he, he's, and I'm not conservative, um, to be straight. Uh, he's been blaming the Liberals and Kathleen Wynne now for, for years. This is now his second term in office. Uh, you know, he was elected and improving, you know, healthcare in Ontario. And there's been crickets, silence. We've had a health minister for two weeks now, silence, not a word, as one emergency department in this province after another uh, closes temporarily. You know, our local MPP is a nice guy. His name is John Jordan. He was elected uh, on a campaign of improving rural, rural health care. And within a week of taking his oath of office, they closed the business emergency department in the region. Like, there's something fundamentally wrong with a national problem being devolved to the provinces, being devolved to local hospital administrations. Uh, a national problem requires a national solution, which in my view recall, in, in, includes making sure that we have adequate nurses to provide the health care that Canadians have come to expect. Uh, and that has been that sort of leadership in that file has been sadly lacking at all levels of government. My guest is Dr. Alan Drummond. He's a family and emergency physician based in Perth, Ontario. He's also the co-chair of public affairs for the Canadian Association of Emergency Physicians. We're talking about the fact that his emergency room has had to close. It is still closed now. Uh, one of many across the country forced to close because of a lack of staff and just the impact of that. When we come back, We'll talk a bit more about what can be done. Clearly, we're in an emergency for emergency rooms right now. Uh, but even long term, what are the solutions? Uh, we'll be back with that. I'm speaking with Dr. Alan Drummond. He's a family and emergency physician in, based in Perth, Ontario, where the ER that he's in has had to close. Uh, one of many across the country facing severe staffing shortages, not able to provide uh, the kind of care necessary to remain open. He's also co-chair of public affairs for the Canadian Association of Emergency Physicians, so well aware of what the situation is right across the country. So what is the solution? We've heard premiers, of course, uh, our premier here, John Horgan in BC, uh, has been ca- calling for more money from the feds um, for a huge increase, $28 billion. I believe, in funding. Uh, is that the solution? Is it simply more money from the federal government or is it more complicated than that? I think it's more complicated than that. And, uh, you know, I, I, I've been in medicine for like four decades now. And, uh, uh, you know, it's always more money coming out of the provinces. And yet there's no accountability for those dollars spent. And that fundamentally is the problem in Canadian healthcare is that, the, you know, they always call on the feds to increase their share of the federal transfers for health. But there's never any accountability for meeting various targets or uh, or various goals in healthcare. Every province gets to do its own thing, and the money disappears into the, the great abyss. Uh, so, I mean, ultimately, if we're talking about in, in hiring more nurses, for sure, we're talking about you know making sure that you know there's money available to pay the nurses what they're entitled to. I know in Ontario they so they capped that, and uh, that's had a dramatic and profound and negative effect, I think, in terms of maintaining our, our emergency workforce. Um, so sure, money comes into it, but money without accountability is uh, is pretty meaningless, I think. Uh, in terms of, you know, going forward, 
you know, COVID is going to provide us with an opportunity, I think, uh, in a forensic postmortem to try and decide, you know, what's gone wrong with Canadian healthcare, what's gone right, and how we can improve things uh, going forward. So, you know, uh, we need to rethink about how we sort of provide emergency services, we, what the what the human resources strategy has to be on the long term for how many nurses, uh, how many emergency nurses we're going to need, how many emergency physicians we're going to need. A couple of years ago, our association did a study of, of uh, emergency physicians in this country and predicted that by the year uh, 2025, we would be short 2,000 emergency physicians. That, 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 that study got sent to every provincial government and the federal government, and the uh, response was like nothing, like it's, we'll sort it out when it happens. I, it seems to me that they're very content to sort of put out the, the little bushfires that spring up in every little department here and there and cross their fingers and cross their toes and hold their breath that, you know, the bushfire will go out without much, uh, without much uh, public, uh, public awareness or publicity. But, you know, certainly in Ontario, certainly in our country, those bushfires have become a conflagration of fires uh, that are spreading from coast to coast. And, you know, there needs to be some national leadership and there needs to be some response, I think, a collaborative effort to decide, you know, what our human resources strategy is going forward. Because anyone, anyone who's ever set foot in an ER knows just how dedicated everyone in that room is. For them to start leaving and walking away saying, you know what, maybe we're not all in this together, must sound alarm bells for someone such as yourself who's been in this profession for so long. Yeah, it does. You know, I'm very proud of uh, my team here in this emergency department. Uh, you know, it's kind of like my baby. I've kind of nurtured it along over the last 40 years. It's been my, you know, my, my principal professional commitment is to making sure that people in Perth and in the townships get the very best of care available within the limited resources necessitated by a rural hospital. And this is a real gut punch for me uh, to see my staff treated this way, uh, to see their uh, concerns ignored, uh, to see a department uh, shut down, uh, totally unsettling uh, the broader community. Yeah, this is really tough for me to witness. And, you know, I don't take any solace from knowing that we're not alone. Uh, that doesn't help me one bit and it doesn't help my community. And my community doesn't want to hear that, you know, uh, COVID has caused all of this. That's not true. Uh, my, my community isn't helped by saying it's an in, in, industry-wide problem with staffing shortages. There were things that could have been done years ago to improve the morale and the, and the, and the integrity of our nursing service. And it just didn't happen. Do you have any hope in the short term that this will get any better? Well, look, if there's no hope, then what do we have? And uh, so, you know, my view is this has become a national problem garnering national attention. Uh, You know, this is the summer of discontent for emergency services. I refer to it as the four four horsemen of the ER apocalypse, uh, you know, descending upon every department that I know of. And certainly all of our members are saying the same thing. So there's no there's no wiggle room, you know. The cat is out of the bag. We all know what the problems are now, and that these are affecting way too many communities and really threatening the well-being of Canadians. So you know, it, this if ever there was a time to say, okay, we need to review where we're going and you know what needs to be done better, this is the time. And we're not going to let the politicians off the hook. There's uh, there's no there's no wiggle room. There's no place to hide anymore. It, you know, the cat's out of the bag. We're suffering. You know, you need to sort of, you know, rise to the challenge and help us, help us maintain the integrity of our emergency health system. Because ultimately what happens here is Canadians die if you're not open. I mean, that, that's, what, yeah. that's what we're down to. 
Well, Canadians have been complaining about length of uh, times in in uh, airports and losing their luggage, and you're absolutely right. Yeah, they, they may lose their luggage, but they certainly may lose their lives. And I don't want to be melodramatic or rhetorical or over the top. Believe me, I that's not my intent here. But the the, the sad reality is that's the truth. It, it's just going to take you know one young person seizing in the back of their parents' car, having come from Tichborne or Charbot Lake or Plevna, uh, having endured, you know, an hour and a half drive into this hospital to find out the door is closed with minimal assistance by one emergency physician and one emergency nurse uh, to provide a critical care resuscitation. And that kid's going to die. It's just going to take one person being brought in the back of a pickup truck, having had their ATV crush their pelvis and bring them in here on a Saturday afternoon or a Sunday morning or in the middle of the night to be met by a very limited staff of one doctor, one nurse, and that person may well die. And yeah, this this is all about lives, and this is what this is all about. And uh, I apologize to anybody who feels like I'm being over the top. I'm not trying to be. I'm just trying to be straight and factual. Dr. Drummond, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. Well, as you may have just heard on the news, the Conservative Party of Canada's Leadership Election Organizing Committee says it has disqualified candidate Patrick Brown from the race over allegations of serious allegations or allegations of wrongdoing. Serious allegations of wrongdoing, says a statement tonight uh, that appear to violate the financial provisions of the Canada Elections Act, the party said in a statement. Following our rules and procedures for the 2022 leadership, the chief returning officer notified the Patrick Brown campaign of the allegations and asked for a written response. The press release reads, he also with Held the inter- he was also uh, he also withheld the interim membership list from the Patrick Brown campaign. Quote, the information provided to date by the Patrick Brown campaign did not satisfy concerns about their compliance with our rules and procedures and or the Canada Elections Act. The chief returning officers therefore recommended uh, that uh, they disqualify Patrick Brown. And earlier tonight, uh, the leadership did so. The party will be sharing the information it has gathered with Elections Canada, who's responsible for ensuring compliance with and enforcement of the Canada Elections Act. Uh, nothing on social media yet from Patrick Brown. Certainly lots of people talking about this already, what what may have led to it, what kind of impact it's going to have on the leadership race. Uh, one that's often been called a battle for the very soul of the party and certainly uh, the Brampton mayor. Or Patrick Brown was seen as one of the front runners in this race along with a few others. So we'll see what the reaction is. We'll see what the fallout is, uh, it just so happens that earlier in the day, we've spoken to Tasha Carradine, who has a new book out. Um, so we can't ask her about this just yet. But uh, she does make some very interesting <laughs> points about where this party should be heading. So on the heels of three straight election losses, um, leaders leaving, Aaron O'Toole being ousted by his own party, um, this really is a fight over what the Conservative Party stands for and how can it best connect with Canadian voters, particularly, it's often said, where elections are won these days in the suburbs of big Canadian cities such as Toronto. And Vancouver, does the future for the party lie in moving towards the middle, presenting better ideas for fixing the problems that the country faces, putting an optimistic face on this? Areas such as productivity, fiscal responsibility, healthcare, we talked about that earlier in the show, climate goals and supporting our energy industries, essentially the peace order and good government approach. Or does it lie in something more pointed, more populist, tapping into the frustration 
that's out there, putting a voice to that frustration, as we've seen with uh, with Pierre Polyev's campaign, for instance. Well, my next guest is a longtime conservative commentator, and she has outlined her beliefs in an extensive new book due out on Thursday. Um, joining me now is Tasha Carradine, a principal with Navigator Limited, Jean Charest's campaign co-chair, and author of the soon-to-be-released The Right Path. Conservatives Can Unite, Inspire, and Take Canada Forward, published by Optimum Publishing International. Tasha, thank you for your time. Oh, my pleasure, Ben. Thank you. So the inspiration for this, what uh, what led you to think, okay, I need to write this all down and I need to get a real pulse of what's happening in this country as far as the conservative movement is concerned? Well, um, as uh, your listeners probably know, I have been a conservative for all pretty much all of my adult life, at least since the age of 14, when I had joined the Progressive Conservative Party and was an active member for 15 years, was youth president, did a number of things. Um, But it's a a conviction that I have really that I care very much about the fate of the Conservative Party and conservatism in general. And after the last election, I was inspired to start writing this book. And it took on, I guess, new urgency in early 2022, when the convoy came to Ottawa, when Aaron O'Toole uh, lost his job, <laughs> and um, conservatives were plunged into a leadership race. So it's really designed not to uh, discuss, you know, who should lead the party, but how the party should lead the country, because I fundamentally think that is the important question that's in front of conservative members right now. When you look back, and, and when you went through the process of putting these thoughts down and talking to different people, if the conservative movement has indeed lost its way to some extent, maybe you'll disagree with that description, but if it's lost its ability to attract voters in a, under a broad tent, where did that happen, do you think? Well, I think it lost trust in the last three elections. And uh, it started really, I think, in 2015 with the barbaric cultural practices tip line or snitch line, um, where the party lost the trust of new Canadians that it had very successfully attracted under Stephen Harper and through Jason Kenney's efforts for many years. And um, then subsequently in 2019 and 2021, it failed to really, I think, get the trust of voters to know what it really stood for. I heard this from a number of candidates uh, with Aaron O'Toole, for example, who said that people at the door would say, well, what do you really stand for? What does he stand for on gun control? I hear this, then I hear that, Um, you know, within the party, uh, Aaron had run as a blue, blue conservative, true blue. And then he did take the party more center right. So even within the party, some of the faithful said, well, you know, what, what do we stand for it? There was this sense of, of, we couldn't really trust what the conservatives were about. So that is where they've lost their way over the last three elections. Um, and I think that's the real issue that's got to be addressed now is that what the brand of the conservative party has to stand for something people trust and expect that they that that will be what they deliver. Uh, whoever becomes leader, I think, really has to run under the same thing that they run for leader as the party will run, because otherwise people will say you're inauthentic. The interesting dilemma there, of course, is that there are different ideas within the conservative movement about what the party should become. Uh, certainly with the influence of the U.S., you see this sort of uh, this more uh, populist move. Uh, we've seen that in this leadership race. Of course, you're Jean Charest's campaign co-chair, I should mention. Uh, mm-hmm. Where do you see that unfolding because clearly there are different theories within the party itself about where it should be headed and what exactly where it should land to be consistent with uh, with Canadian voters. Right. And we're seeing two real currents right now uh, represented by different candidates. Uh, as you mentioned, I am working on Josh Ray's campaign. 
Um, this book, though, like I said, is not about the campaign. It's about a vision that I believe is the best for the party, a vision that not just Mr. Sheree, but a couple of the other candidates are more centrist. I would say, um, you know, Scott Aitchison uh, is one and Patrick Brown's another. Um, and then you have a more populist vein espoused by Roman Baber, uh, Baber rather, um, Leslie Lewis, and of course, Pierre Polyev. So you have these two currents that are appealing to different types of potential voters. And you're right, there is, um, I would say a conflict. There's only a conflict if you set it up the wrong way, in my view, because I think that there is a way to reconcile the issues that concern populists or that inflame populism without falling into the negative tropes that populism can, the dark places that it can go. And that's that's the concern, I think, on the minds of, of um, many, many conservatives is that if you go down a path of populism, it takes you to places that Donald Trump went. It takes you to places, you know, of, of white supremacy and all sorts of, you know, bad potential things. And that's not to say any of these campaigns are in that place now. But the point is that could things go there is the fear. So the book shows that, um, you know, through research and, and scholarship and people who study this, you can address populist issues through policy means that don't fall into that. And that's what I say. Conservatism has a lot to offer in terms of equality of opportunity, which is the real issue when people can't get ahead and they feel the game is rigged against them and they don't have the same chance, fair chance to get uh, you know what they want in life as the next person. Then they look to either blame people, scapegoat people, or look for you know an easy way out. Get the gatekeepers out of the way. Everything will be fine. Those simple answers, in my view, are not the answer for the party because they won't attract the mainstream voters that it needs to form government. So um, just short to answer your question is that the party has to decide which pool of voters it wants, center right, or does it want the more populous PPC type voter? It's that stark a choice. And I think that the more greater opportunity is in the center right. And I think it's also more in, in line with conservative principles traditionally. But how do you account then? Because, you know, you go to rallies and so on, and there's so much, there's so much anger out there right now, specifically aimed at the prime minister. Uh, sure. But Pierre Polyev has, has managed, I think, to, to tap into some deep-seated um, animosity out there. And it's not just about sort of hating, hating the liberals, but it's a lot, you know, people who feel a lot of what's been going on in government the last uh, while has been unfair to them. How do you, how do you account for the for the anger uh, and and still maintain that sort of the line that you're looking to to achieve, which is to try to sell a positive message? Well, um, right now, the message that's being sent is that there's not enough freedom, you know, and I can see how that can relate to things like people who are upset with vaccine mandates or other restrictions governments imposed. But freedom is not a word that is going to appeal to a wider swath of the electorate. Um, it's become tarnished as well by the association in the United States with Trumpism, um, with, you know, uh, certain movements within that, that, that are, well, let's just, let's face it, there's there are racist elements, all sorts of things that have latched onto this word. And it's really sad because freedom is actually a cornerstone of conservative thought. It's, it's, it's one of the most important pillars of conservatism, but the term has become tarnished. So what I say in the book is that Look at what these folks are looking for. People who are upset with Trudeau and they're upset with mandates and they're upset with the way that things have unfolded in the last two years. They're upset because they feel blocked, right? And they're blocked from the opportunity they want. So to me, the common thread to link the voter groups that conservatives need, which are new Canadians, urban suburban Canadians and young Canadians with people who feel disaffected is opportunity. Opportunity is a positive uplifting message it says, you know what, what you need is a fair chance 
Everyone needs a level playing field. We don't want to favor people through economic redistribution like Trudeau does. He throws money at certain groups. Um, we also don't want to favor elites. You shouldn't get ahead because of your connections, but we're not going to demonize them. It's not, that's not the real issue. The issue is having that level playing field so everyone has a fair shot at what they want to do. And that is really, I think, what the conservatives have stood for. I mean, since Edmund Burke, who talked about equality of opportunity in 1789, you know, this is not a new concept, but it's a positive word. It's a positive image. And language is very important in this conversation because the freedom language turns off a lot of people. I talk to these folks, you know, new Canadians in particular, they're not a fan of the convoy. It's, it's just not on. So if you get that association with a whole party, you have a problem right? Doesn't mean you shouldn't address the issues of the convoy and, and, you know, talk to people and make sure they feel heard, but you can't just fall into that label because then you really, it's a danger that you'll alienate that other group of voters that you really, really need. I'm speaking with Tasha Carrot in this half hour. She's a principal with Navigator Limited, a conservative commentator, author of the soon to be released Thursday to be exact, The Right Path, Conservatives Can Unite, Inspire and Take Canada Forward, published by Optimum Publishing International. We're talking about what she learned as she went through this process of trying to establish where the conservative movement, where the Conservative Party of Canada should be headed uh, in the near future in order to, to regain power. Let's be honest, that's that's the end goal here. Uh, when we come back, we'll talk a bit more just about, about walking that fine line between anger and positivity, and also uh, just some of what she found in this book that may have surprised her as a longtime Conservative Party member and observer. We'll be back with that. My guest is Tasha Carradin. She's the principal with Navigator Limited, a conservative commentator, author of the soon-to-be-released The Right Path, Conservatives Can Unite, Inspire, and Take Canada Forward, published by Optimum Publishing International. She is also Jean Charest's campaign co-chair in this current uh, CPC leadership race. Did you hear anything, Tasha? I mean, you've been around this movement, as you mentioned, since your early teens. Did you hear anything in this research that uh, pleasantly surprised you or or otherwise? Um. Yes, I was actually um, one of my favorite chapters to write was on how to get young people to vote conservative. And I was pleasantly surprised to see um, demographically that Generation Z in particular is an incredibly accessible voter base to conservatives um, if they only make the effort to reach them. You know, traditionally, we think that young people are all leaning left. That's sort of the common wisdom. And uh, there was a fascinating study by Deloitte that I go into quite at length in the book that breaks these you know, millennials and Gen Z down into different groupings and looks at their political leanings. And what you find is millennials. Yes, they are actually not as right leaning. Only 20% of them are sort of immediately accessible. They're called the diverse strivers, people who share sort of conservative ideas of, of, you know, economic um, stability and uh, entrepreneurship and those kinds of things. And there's another 20% that are potentially accessible, but some of them have a lot of environmental concerns um, others maybe are skeptical of government. They don't like to get involved as much though. So it's harder to pull them in, but Gen Z, you know, almost half of Gen Z labels themselves as right of center politically. That is huge. The problem is only some of them can vote right now because that's, you know, kids under 24, I say kids. Uh, so only the 18 to 24 year olds are currently able to vote. But if the conservatives make an effort in the next couple of election cycles to start getting these folks on board, that could really change the game down the road because they're going to be the biggest demographic group in a very short time. You know, boomers are fading. Sorry, folks. I'm Gen X and we're not that important either. But the Gen Zs are ones to focus on. So I, I do list off the issues that they're concerned about and how the conservatives could appeal to them. And that was that was very encouraging to me. 
I can imagine because that is also often a group we often think of those groups as sort of being uh, already, uh, you know, ripe, ripe for the picking by by different parties further to the left of the Conservative Party. If how much is at stake going in this choice? Do you think of, of leader? Because it feels like if if the Liberals either transfer power to somebody, uh, they, you know, they bring in a new leader and they win again, that uh, the Conservative Party could find itself in the nether regions for quite a while if this if this happens. Yes, it is a very crucial time. Um, when I looked at the, the the demographic trends and data that show, you know, how the parties have been doing over time, the Conservatives have been losing ground in urban and suburban Canada since the 1960s. You know, since just after Diefenbaker, it really was actually that was the sort of watershed where their vote tilted more rural, and it has stayed that way ever since. Um, and that is a huge problem because what we're seeing, of course, is Canada is becoming increasingly urban. Uh, new Canadians live in cities for the most part. Young people live in cities. I mean, downtowns like Calgary has one of the most young downtowns of any city in the country. Um, so you've got these collections of folks that the voters that we need to form government, especially under our current system, because the conservative vote, if it's if it's concentrated in an older rural Western population over time, it's it's not going to be able to form government. It's never going to get enough votes in those other voter bases to get the numbers of seats in parliament to have a majority government or even a minority government. So this is a really important time to realize that and to say, well, how does the party address those groups? How do we make conservatism relevant to them? Because that's really what this is about. It's not, you know, becoming liberal light or changing your stripes or no, it's about looking at what principles are, you know, shared by these groups. And there are so many, um, you know, for new Canadians, they want a better life for their children. The sort of trifecta traditionally of faith, family, free enterprise uh, is something that is very appealing and conservatism. Another thing I learned that was kind of surprising, Edmund Burke, who I referenced earlier, was a religious pluralist. You know, he was somebody back in the 1700s who thought that Islam, um, you know, had a lot of value. Other religions, uh, Catholicism and Protestantism, he was he was against discrimination, religious discrimination. Most people don't know that. Right. And they wouldn't think that the conservatives stand for that sort of thing. There's stereotypes about what we are. In fact, you know, that sort of community rooted little platoons of society, respect the family, respect uh, whatever you believe in. Those things are very conservative values. Those are really appealing to new Canadians. So. There's a lot of, of possibilities for the Tories, but if they don't latch on to them now, my concern is that the Liberals will continue to define us. And if we split, you know, if there's a split in the party, it's game over because historically, the last hundred years, every time there's been a split, whether it's social credit or whether it's reform, you end up with a situation where the Liberals just get into power for at least 10 years. Tasha, I gather there is a website for the book. Yes, there is. Thank you for mentioning that. <laughs> ben, thank you so much. It is um, therightpathbook.com. Very easy to remember, therightpathbook.com. It's also the Twitter handle, Right Path Book. Um, and uh, that's where you can go for information on the book. There's a lot of questions and answers. There's uh, tour dates. We're going across the country, starting in Calgary on the 7th of July, and then Vancouver and Kelowna as well. Um, and there's also, uh, you can buy the book. There's different ways to buy it. And so we list off those and you can order it uh, online. Tasha Carradine, thank you so much for your time. Oh, thank you, Ben. Have a nice night. Well, it's that time of year. You know, the weather's nice. People are out on the patios. Everyone looks like they're having a good time. The beach is nice, you know, sitting in the backyard, watching the sun go down, enjoying the heat. And usually it screams, why don't you have a beer with that? 
or maybe a glass of wine or a drink or something along those lines. Um, but what if you're trying to cut down a little bit? What if you had a few too many over the long weekend, or maybe you're just trying to cut back a bit? Um, well, it turns out there are lots of options out there that allow you to still have a drink in your hand, but an alcohol-free one. Um, many options, an increasing number of options. I was noticing how many uh, microbreweries now, smaller breweries, are making low or no alcohol beer these days. I haven't tried much of it. Some of it's great. I remember back in the old days, it wasn't so great. So it's nice to see uh, options out there. Well, joining me now with more on this to inspire you, if you need some inspiration, is Sarah Kate of SomeGoodCleanFun.com. She's also an alcohol-free sommelier. Sarah, welcome back to the show. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me this evening. Um, summertime, you know, you can always, you always think about uh, sitting out on the patio or looking out over something nice with a drink in your hand, sun shining, you know, it, it sort of goes hand in hand. I guess that must be a, a time of year where you need to, if you're trying to stay dry July, dry in July, uh, it's, a, it's a time to, uh, to start to think about what the impact of summer might be on that. Yeah, and this is something that I hear really, really regularly from my community. You know, they've, they have decided to rethink drinking. And so that can take a lot of different forms, you know, whether they uh, quit 100% or, you know, just uh, are moderating throughout the week and really rethinking the, uh, the role of alcohol in their lives that they're doing, a, you know, uh, they're happy with their progress. And then bam, patio weather hits. And they say, I can't, you know, I just I can't, I can't get through it. You know, everybody else is drinking around me. And there's it's sunny. We're on a patio. We're out looking out over the ocean, perhaps. And, um, you know, so I, I, they say, oh, I decided to have a drink. And so I, you know, no judgment, obviously. And, and um, you know, you're not always going to score 100% on every test. But I always question kind of, you know, how deep this is embedded in our psyche, um, the connection between warm weather and drinking. And it's something that comes up time and time again. It really seems to be a struggle for so many people. Yeah. What are some of the options then to try to, uh, to accommodate that, to both enjoy yourself, even if you're around lots of people out drinking, patios are full, right? It's always invite. I think it's even more inviting as part of the, part of the issue. You sort of, there's something going on and if, you know, often it's patios and pubs and restaurants, right? Uh, what are some of the ways to, uh, to tackle it? You know what, I actually I have a little sort of like go to strategies that worked for me. These aren't going to work for everybody. But what I kind of say when I was going through this, I, I, you know, have gone through this will be my third summer now of rethinking drinking. And the first thing I started to do was really to play the tape forward. So I started really thinking about, you know, how is this worth it for me? Is it worth me feeling like that 15 minutes of happiness? And, you know, will I, um, you know, will I feel good about my choice two hours from now when I'm feeling a bit cranky after having a pint or whatever? Um, you know, the other thing that I also started to do is I started to disconnect my actions from other people's actions. So it doesn't have to be your choice. It does not have to be your choice. And so I started really thinking about that, that I want to be firm in my choice and I'm not going to let other people's um, choices dictate. And again, no judgment to those for those other people, but I really was clear. I had to get really clear on like, what was my, what was my decision? I didn't want to have a glass of wine because I knew I wasn't going to feel good afterwards. And so I sort of disconnected the, the, the fear of missing out, I guess you could say, so, but there are options. I mean, we were just at, uh, out looking the other day at sort of mocktails and things you can drink that are summer drinks that don't involve alcohol, but it can bring some of that, uh, bring some of that 
cheer or, you know, spirit of the season uh, to a glass anyway. That is very, very true. And this is, this is an area that, and I, I, we, you know, we've sort of talked about this before for people who have heard me on the show before, this is a booming industry. And when I say booming, it is, it is growing faster than almost any other market category, you know, in the, in the food and drinks, the food and beverages uh, world for a very long time. So we're talking not just about uh, non-alcoholic beers, which have been very common in the grocery stores up until now. Um, over the last two years, there's been a huge surge in non-alcoholic spirits, non-alcoholic wine, non-alcoholic beer, craft beer. Uh, Canadians are really great at that, making non-alcoholic craft beer. But also the other the other area that's really starting to boom is ready-to-drink cocktails, non-alcoholic cocktails. So things that come in a can and which is perfect for this type of weather. So if you're out at a boat, for instance, I always say to people, find some ready to drinks and bring them with you and put them in the cooler with everybody else's stuff. And then you don't feel like you're missing out. And you've got some really great, there are tons of really great gin and tonics in a can. Um, you know, the mojitos that are out there right now in, in cans are a little bit sweet, too sweet for me. But some people may like that, but there's lots of choices. And, and any advice just when trying to pick one out? Maybe you haven't tried one before. I've had a few. Some of them are great. Some of them aren't so great. You know, it's a bit, it's a little bit hit or miss. I think it depends on your palate too. As you've mentioned, sometimes you're expecting a certain um, taste and it's not that, right? It doesn't taste like alcohol. <laughs> <laughs> and this is the one thing I always, so there's two things. Number one, you have to approach it with the mindset of, it's not going to have the alcohol burn in it because there's no alcohol in it. What you're, what you're replicating is the experience of having an elevated non-alcoholic adult drink. So I tend to stay away from the term mocktail. There's nothing wrong with that word, but I like to clarify that it's a very elevated, these are elevated non-alcoholic adult beverages. And so you are trying to replicate the experience of having a drink and you're not, the burn isn't going to be there from alcohol, but all the other wonderful things that you like in cocktails, alcohol is only one small part of a well-made cocktail. And so that's number one. Number two, yes, it's hit or miss it's really hit or miss on what your taste buds are. So for instance, I really love um, a type of non-alcoholic sparkling wine from a company called uh, Lights. It's a winery called Lights. And um, it's a Riesling, a sparkling Riesling. And it's it's wonderful. But I know people who prefer the rosé version of that sparkling wine. And I think that that's too sweet. So you have to really invest in trying things and um, experimenting. There's lots of, you know, on, at somegoodcleanfun.com, I've got a list of where to buy alcohol free in Canada. And there's lots of um, options, West Coast, East Coast, Ontario. Um, there. So the other the third thing I was going to say, which I've all I always kind of laugh about with people is you're when you have a non alcoholic ready to drink or cocktail or glass of wine, um, and it tastes so close to the real thing. It's very disconcerting, because you're waiting for the other shoe to drop, you're waiting for the the that pleasant buzz you get after about five minutes, right? And the 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 feeling of of um, that the the things that the alcohol does to your body, and it never comes. So it's very it's very disconcerting if you're not used to it. Are there some you you mentioned wine? Wine is always a big popular summer drink. White, especially rosé, especially. Are there any other good ones out there that you might recommend to people if they're out there looking for uh, for something tasty to have either on the patio or have with have with a meal? Yeah, actually, so. Um, 
there's a there's a company that um, it's a brand called Smoky Bay, and it's a, it's an imported wine from Australia, and they are they're being imported into uh, Quebec and bottled. So the juice is actually imported in, into Quebec and bottled in Quebec, and it's called Smoky Bay. You can order that through Upside Drinks. It's one of the only places that sells Upside Drinks. But for me, that's one of my top picks for the summer. They make a Chardonnay, a Rosé, and a Shiraz. And most people who have tried the Rosé have said it's it's absolutely fantastic. So it's UpsideDrinks.com is where you can look for Smoky Bay. Um, the other uh, the other wine I mentioned is the the Lights Eins Y Zero is the brand, and you can get that at, at a uh, a bunch of different places. Again, there's a list on my website, and it's uh, it's a winery in Germany, and they've been doing this for ten years, and they're sort of market leaders in this area, and they make a Riesling, a Rosé, uh, and a Pinot Noir, and they're all excellent substitutes for um, you know having a, a steak, having a hamburger, having some pizza. Um, you know, there's, again, with wine, though, you have to try, try things and see what you like. I really love the Smoky Bay Chardonnay, but I have had um, women who have tried it and said, you know, it's too, you know, they, they are not Chardonnay lovers to begin with. So they, they didn't really love it. But um, those are a couple that I really enjoy. And the German wine is lights. It's L-I-L-I- L- oh, sorry. L E I T Z is the, oh, the winery. Yeah. yeah. And there, the brand is Eins Y zero. And um, so if you go to somegoodcleanfun.com, there should be uh, you know, best wines in Canada link somewhere on there. And it's, it's, it's there or click on any of the marketplaces under where to buy. And there should be um, it's it sold at most, most of the online marketplaces at this point. Great. I've noticed that, Everybody and there's a lot of microbreweries in uh, in in Victoria, tons actually on Vancouver Island. Almost all of them now have uh, either a low alcohol or no alcohol option this year. It seems to have really exploded, uh, and, and and where everyone has one, I gather they're getting better and better too. Yes, Canadians are doing really great, uh, a really great job at making non-alcoholic craft beer. This is the one place where we're really leading. And I don't remember what the exact number is, but the actual market, like the category itself of non-alcoholic beer has, you know, has grown like 350% over the last year, which is absolutely crazy. Um, But it just goes to show, uh, I think it was the New York Times uh, just wrote an article, uh, you know, is, uh, you know, is, is non-alcoholic beer just a trend? It's not a trend. When you see all these small microbreweries, as you, as you noticed, creating a low alcohol beer or a non-alcoholic beer, they're seeing that there's a demand for it and they're responding to that demand and low alcohol. I, I, I always forget to say, you know, there are low alcohol options too. So if you don't want a completely non-alcoholic beer, which is 0.5% and under, there are lots of, you know, newer beers out there that are 2.5%, 3%. And so if you're rethinking drinking and not ready to commit to complete dry, dry July, that's also a good option. Any good ones out there that you've found of late? You know what? I love uh, Nani, and I think I may have mentioned this on our St. Patrick's Day show, but <laughs> Nani is, uh, it's actually from the West Coast, and they make a Pilsner that is absolutely great, and it's it's a very small operation. They just have two products, and it's, you know, run by two brothers, and I, I'm telling you, like, that is just such a great, easy-drinking beer. Um, there's a, a bit of a bigger 
a brewery called Libra, which is out on the East Coast, and they make now four different types of um, four four to six different types of um, non-alcoholic beer, and they are now starting to become more widely available. And I would say their uh, hazy IPA and their pale ale are just really excellent for sort of any any sort of easy drinking easy drinking and um, any type of food or you know if you're if you're uh, having some pizza. Any t- they have a whole bunch of different types of beer that, that go with whatever you're eating. And so those are kind of two that I love. And then um, if you're in Toronto, Rival House is a new, a new um, they're an online marketplace and they've started making their own non-alcoholic beer. And my husband swears by their pale ale. So if you're, int- if you love pale ale, you're going to really enjoy the Rival House pale ale. So some suggestions there, Nani, Libra, and Rival House in Toronto. Sarah Kate, as always, thank you for uh, for sharing the spirit of the season with us in a dry way. And mm-hmm. uh, enjoy the rest of your summer. I'm sure it's going to be a nice one. And thanks for presenting listeners with so many options for uh, for ways they can uh, still enjoy a drink without enjoying, without necessarily having to turn to the alcohol this year. Thank you so much for having me and have a wonderful evening, everyone. <laughs> Well, they are among the country's most vulnerable kids, those who wind up in group homes for kids in foster care. And a global news APTN investigation has uncovered some allegations of unsafe and unsanitary conditions in some privately run group homes for foster kids in Ontario. The months-long project included interviews of more than two dozen former workers, child welfare experts, ministry documents, and court filings all to tell the story of a private company that some former employees say placed profits over the care of those vulnerable kids. Here's a bit of what was said in the report. These homes were in horrible shape. Electricity not working, water not working. That happened on a regular basis. Some staff would say that they're a paycheck. What do you mean? A staff would call a youth a paycheck? Yeah. I've heard multiple staff say that to kids straight to their face. Every young person in care has a price tag. We're talking about companies doing business through kids as commodities. Well, one of the voices you heard in there was Global News Chief Investigative Correspondent Carolyn Jarvis, who worked on this story for uh, quite a while. And she's here now uh, to share more details about it. Thank you for your time tonight. Thanks for having me, Ben. It's quite the story. I mean, I guess to set the context, how do children end up, how do foster kids end up in this system, in this private system? Well, you know, it's a number of steps and it also depends on where you live and what the degree of resources are. And as you could imagine, there are more resources in urban settings than there are in rural settings and even fewer resources available to children and families in First Nations communities, especially in far north and northwestern communities specific to Ontario. But that holds true in many parts of Canada. And so... Typically, they try to keep kids within their families as as the first attempt. So is there a relative that can take them into what's either called kinship care or in First Nations communities, customary care is also a term that's used. If that doesn't work, they look at alternative methods of keeping kids together and within their families. Then come foster care homes that they look as an option. Group homes uh, are an option that are used as a matter of last resort. And kids know that. They know that that's the end of the line where all other attempts have failed or if other attempts, unfortunately, haven't been tried first. Why you go into the private side of the system? Why private foster care homes? Why private group homes? Well, oftentimes that's because children's aid societies don't have homes that they're operating themselves. It's hard to find foster care parents, certainly in light of the pandemic, but even prior to that. And Children's Aid Society, by and large in recent years, got out of the business of running group homes. They came into all sorts of controversy for a time. You know, They are a place where bad things happen and they get 
and bad reputations. And so they didn't run them. They contracted out third parties to run these companies. And so in essence, the government sends uh, an envelope of cash to Children's Aid Society and the Children's Aid Society, instead of running these facilities themselves, contracts out a third party and sends that envelope then on to them. And these third parties, in some cases, are not for profit, but in many cases are for profit private entities that, as the name would suggest, are driven by finances and making a buck. And when experts tell us money is the driver, that often comes before quality of care. And that is what our investigation found, certainly in the instance of Connor Holmes, so say kids who went there and workers. So what did you set out to find with this investigation? What was, what was your premise going in and what did you attempt to learn? Well, we received information from sources in early days that pointed us to um, a number of homes where troubling things were going on. Kids were going hungry. They weren't getting access to basic medical care and eye care. And frankly, uh, what might might be just as alarming as the one home that we investigated is that there was a list of homes. This wasn't one instance. It was many that were put on a list for various regions and various, uh, you know, egregious things that were happening at these homes. And so we set out to investigate them and you know, in speaking with experts and people who are in close contact with the field over and over, uh, we were able to focus our gaze most acutely on, on a, two or three operators. Uh, and eventually, Connor Holmes in this latest series became our focus. You know, I should note, a month ago, we did do a half-hour documentary, which aired on Global News as The New Reality, uh, which documented the system-wide problems that the child welfare industry is experiencing in Ontario, and which are very similar to other provinces across the country. And it was after that sort of holistic approach that we then narrowed down into this one company. But it's truly an example of what can happen within a privatized system of care where, you know, we had people writing us yesterday, Ben, saying, I worked in some of these homes, kids were wearing rags and managers told us them's the lumps, essentially, that's what they get and you got to live with it. Um, and, and yeah, money is the driver instead of the well-being of the kids. Is it lucrative? Well, experts would tell us that some people get very, very rich. I mean, I can't look into the personal bank accounts of the people who are operating these homes, but certainly the the wealth that some of these people have accumulated would suggest um, that there is money to be made. You know, in in one of the quotes from from part three of our series, you know, Kiaris Garabagi, who is the dean of of the school at um, Toronto Metropolitan University, says, you know, some people are getting very, very rich off of this. And if you think about the money that's changing hands, you know, typically a child in a group home in Ontario is fetching anywhere between $200 and $300 a day. But in many cases, because these group homes are taking kids with the most complex needs, a group home will say, well, they need two-to-one care, which means um, two workers for each child, or even three-to-one care or one-on-one care. And every time the resources are augmented, as you can imagine, um, the pay um, or or the fee that that child fetches increases. And there are kids who are, and we've seen contracts that that show there are kids who um, require $1,200 a day for each day that they are in the care of a home. Well, you multiply that across a month and you can see that the numbers add up very quickly, especially for the companies that have decided to build an, quite an enterprise, I mean, in, meaning many group homes, many foster care homes. And when you're building that empire, you can again see how those dollars multiply and you can create quite a business. An economy of scale to some extent. And the more complex the child, the more lucrative the child, I, I gather. Um, yeah, it's not is, the yeah. kids they're making money off of. Sorry, I've been no. to there. You know, they're also making money off of the real estate. For many people, the play, or I should say for some people, the play is that 
you know, while you're running these group homes, you're also paying down the mortgages that the kids live in. And at the end of it, you've got a fleet of real estate. So um, some of them are getting wealthy, so say experts. And certainly we have been able to document the real estate wealth of some operators um, on account of all the properties they accumulate at the end of a certain number of years. What did you find specifically in this investigation when it came to Connor Homes? What were the conditions like? Oh, the investigation, the inspection rather reports that we received through freedom of information requests from the ministry were deeply disturbing. Mouse droppings in kitchen drawers. You know, there was a kid who was deemed to have regular headaches, but he couldn't get access to a Tylenol pill or Advil. Um, There was a kid who was at the home who was asked by an inspector why he wasn't wearing his glasses. And according to the inspector's um, account of the events, the boy told him, well, I lost my glasses at my last foster home. And Gosh, for any parents of a, in a blended family, you know how easy it is to lose things or leave things behind at one home to the next. He lost his glasses at his last foster home, the boy said. But Connor Holmes told him that he wasn't allowed to have a new pair of glasses until his next eye exam. And that was more than nine months away. And in the paperwork for this child, they didn't even know, know he wear, knew he wore, wore glasses. You know, one child's document said that he spoke French, but nobody was aware of that. There were ombudsman reports to the to the province saying that there were complaints that kids were going hungry in these homes. And the pictures we've obtained from inside these homes literally show in a bedroom, which fortunately was vacant, that the ceiling caved in and that workers in that home had been complaining for weeks of water damage that was on account of mold that smelled so foul it would give them headaches throughout their shifts. Windows were boarded up for weeks, if not months, even in winter, workers told us. So these were homes that were falling apart and weren't paid attention to. And the result of that is kids felt that they were worthless because why was it even worth repairing their homes? What did the Connor family or what did the Connors have to say to this to you? Well, as you can imagine, through the course of our investigation, we sought their response to um, our questions, not only in a written way, but also on camera. They declined to appear on camera. We showed up at Bob Connor's waterfront vacation property in eastern Ontario, and he wouldn't even come to the door. Um, even though he was inside. We sent lengthy questions and a lot of them they declined to respond to directly. Um, They did say that, you know, for the first 40 years of their operations, their foster care license was renewed without any conditions, which suggests that things were fine for a time, though I should note that in more recent years, there have been conditions on their foster care license and they just surrendered the foster care license. They still, however, operate group homes, which is a logic that is lost on many how it is that they cannot, they're forbidden from operating foster care homes, but they can operate a group home in Ontario. Um, Yeah, they went on to say that their finances were audited and um, that they do their best to not only meet, but exceed the regulatory standards in Ontario, which begs the question, are the standards enough? You know, are inspections doing what they should be doing? Are they truly ensuring the well-being of kids who rely on these homes and these workers to protect them when the homes that they were brought up in originally were not sufficient to do so? That leads me to uh, to what I will talk to you right about right after the break, which is where is the province in all this, and where is the supervis- where is the supervisory aspect, where is the oversight? I'm speaking with Carolyn Jarvis, she's Global News's chief investigative correspondent, but her latest uh, series on uh, foster care, foster care group homes, in specific one uh, set of one company's group homes specifically, and just the conditions they found there, what it indicates perhaps about a broader issue, uh, and again, where is the province in all this? We'll be back with that. My guest this half hour is Carolyn Jarvis, the Global, New- Global News' chief investigative correspondent. We're talking about her latest investigation, uh, an investigation you've done with others, I should point out, um, on private for-profit 
uh, group homes for foster kids in Ontario, specifically one uh, company's group homes, uh, specifically in this case, but also paints a, a broader picture here. Where is the province in all this? Because one would assume that once they've the child has been taken, has has set up residence in, in one of these homes, that the that the ministry would have some sort of a duty of care when it came to that child's well-being. Yeah, good assumption on your part there, Ben, and, and that of many others as well. So really, there's two bodies that that would hold accountability in this case beyond the, the operator, the home itself, the company, the private company. One is the Children's Aid Society that contracts out that company. They have a duty of accountability and oversight. And higher up the the chain, of course, is the ministry, which has set the entire infrastructure through which this flows. It allows private for-profit operators to fundamentally exist in the province. It gives the grants them licenses based on what are usually annual inspections to make sure that they are functioning and operating as one would expect them to. Um, When we launched our first series of stories and, and our special on the new reality, Global's the New Reality, a month ago, um, Ford, Premier Ford, promised on the election trail based on our findings at that time that this was going to be one of his key priorities as soon as he resumed office. And um, although we have yet to hear from him and the Minister of Children, Community and Social Services declined again our offer, an extension of an interview, you better believe we're going to be knocking on their door in the days to come saying, okay, you promised this would be a priority. What are you going to do about it? He said before that they were going to be increasing oversight and inspections, which is the conservative way, you know, to make sure that um, things are policed properly, but inspections aren't working. Um, What people say to us is that they amount to a checklist. You know, do you have a fire extinguisher? Is your food following the Canada food guide, which is not without its merit to analyze, but there's a lot of other things that need to be captured. Like, is the kid happy? (laughs) You know, is this as loving an environment as it could be? Um, you know, are there, are there things on the walls? Does it feel like a home? Um, how are we engaging with these kids? When you say there are, you're offering them therapy, what is that? How do we quantify that? What does that actually mean? And, and what are the outcomes of the kids? What do kids say on what you would call in a, in a job and exit interview? So when the child leaves, what do they tell you then about what their experience was like in this home? And I, to this point, have not seen inspections that capture that sort of quality of care. And boy, Ben, there have been for years, dare I say decades, documents and blueprints authored by highly respected people that the government has even commissioned and paid for to produce that have literally given a roadmap on how to fix things. And for whatever host of reasons, they haven't done so. And so the system remains flawed and broken, despite people within the ministry who may have had may have the very best of intentions, but things just aren't changing quickly enough for the kids who need them. And so we will be knocking on those doors to ask again what will be happening to make sure that kids are being protected as they require. I would imagine one of the big problems, too, is where do you place these kids if not in the homes they're already in? There's already a lack of space. Well, this is and again, just to return to that earlier point, it's a problem that is has been augmented by the pandemic. I mean, you can imagine how we all sort of close ranks and shut our doors because we were told to. And so foster care homes weren't opening up their doors to new people and heavens knows what sort of virus when everything was unknown at that time. And so many children's aid societies and their and their executive directors have told me that there is a real absence of foster parents um, to take in kids in needs. And that is a fundamental problem. But there's also, you know, a mindset and a philosophy doing everything we can to keep kids within their families and within their communities, provided they are healthy enough to stay there and there are supports to keep them there. Progressive children's aid societies do do that, but not all. 
Um, you know, in some communities, there just aren't options. And so kids are sent down south, unfortunately, from First Nations. We've seen that historically, and it still continues to this day. I mean, it's very hard for our Children's Aid Society or what's called an Indigenous Wellbeing Society in the far northern reaches of Ontario to supervise the, the, the operation of a private group home that's in far eastern Ontario. So things become tricky. And, and communication between those Children's Aid Societies and Indigenous Wellbeing Societies about, hey, what's that operator like? Or is it, is it a healthy place to send a kid? Or, and what experience did you have? Historically, that line of dialogue hasn't been easy to access or hasn't been happening at all. I'm told that that's changing, but who knows if it's happening fast enough. Of course, these are some of the most vulnerable kids in society. Carolyn Jarvis, thank you so much. Look forward to the next installment of this investigation. Um, I thank you. Thank you for your time. Thanks, Ben.